0: Welcome to Mecha Nations, a critical analysis and rewatch podcast of all things mecha. I am one of your hosts, Ignis Maddox, and it is important mech etiquette to always bow to giant projections when they bow to you.
1: I'm Steven Hero. Behold my motherfucking Lazengon.
2: <laughs> I'm PMC Trilogy, and I'm saying that it's only a paper moon. <laughs> <laughs> So I guess we want to go into it then, huh? Yeah, yeah. Uh, just uh, Mecca in the in a dangerous space time. Yeah, our yeah, exactly. remote
1: space.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's right. We're all in our individual space stations. That's that's how seriously we're taking this social uh, distancing. Welcome to Mecca Nations from home. Uh, hopefully people who are able to work from home are working from home now. And those of you who can't retail uh, service jobs, skilled workers. We see you. Uh, hopefully things work out better for you guys soon. Hopefully everything gets back to normal soon.
2: Yeah, and, but, and a lesson uh, to the world that all of the people who do this kind of work are, in fact, necessary and vital and should be treated as such.
0: Yes, exactly, exactly. Although, uh, you will, this isn't exactly the sweet spot for our show, or the sweet spot for our show, while including social justice in many ways. Mechs often include social justice, even if it's... You know, uh, a tool for certain people. Who I won't name Lelouch specifically, but you know who I'm talking about. Um, how are you guys doing otherwise? What what kind of uh, PMC do you have? Any overboost uh, uh, updates for us?
2: So in terms of uh, uh, overboost and Verniers, I do I do plan to reach out to the next overboost guest soon. I was busy with GDQ submissions, which delayed. Uh, my right. my uh, boosting off, but my intention is to have I, what I think is going to be interesting. We've talked a lot about how important access is in terms of defining tastes, and the next person I'm hoping to interview uh, does Gundam speedruns, but also specifically is someone who grew up with mecha anime in Germany. And so, you know, oh. I think we're going to find probably that uh, you know, compared to my first two guests who are primarily just mecha game speedrunners without necessarily the interest in anime uh, to accompany it. I think this next interview should be interesting that we'll, we'll be able to dig into you know what it means to have grown up elsewhere and develop that same interest in in mecha anime for so, Verniers. Ooh. uh ooh. i have some some treats i did finish that playthrough of zen of the enders the fist of mars <laughs> uh which was <laughs> how exactly, was your runtime on that uh it ended up being about like 15 hours or so 15 16 hours um it was it was a weird romp. It was it was really a weird romp. I think to me more than anything else, it just confirms probably what you could have already guessed, which was that in two thousand one, two thousand two, the business plan was that Konami wanted a mecha anime empire. And they wanted sure. Zone of the Enders to be that, which is why there was an anime and a Super Robot Wars style game and right. you know, so forth and so on. And and when it didn't materialize, you know, it, it, it's not surprising to me that they dropped it. The, the plot was serviceable. Otherwise, the gameplay was Super Robot Wars because, as I mentioned last time, it was made by Winky Soft, which is literally the same developer that made yeah, Super Robot guys. Wars. So, uh, and Do that, you know if... Yes. Oh, sorry. Go no, ahead. No, no, sorry, no. sorry. I was going to move on to the next thing.
0: Um, well, I was just going to ask real quick with regards to Winky Soft. Do you know if they have any relationship to Banpresto? Do you, I, do you recognize that
2: I name? I do recognize that name. That is another. Uh, Banpresto. I think that's. I, when I've been re- looking up RPGs and other things, I noticed I, I've seen that name before, and it wouldn't surprise me if they do. I don't f- know if okay. they have a direct relationship. Um, so, yeah.
0: My, my main relationship with Banpresto is that Banpresto created a pretty decent um, adaptation. Uh, strategy RPG adaptation of the Tenchimuya Muyo OVA. Mm. Uh, it's oh. a pretty fun... Yeah, it's a pretty fun sort of side story that takes place in the OVA's timeline. So it has things like Kagato, it's got the, the Lighthawk Sword and those transformations. Uh, pretty up the, the uh, Steven Hero content alley, I would say. But otherwise, yeah, I was just... It, it just seems like they do a lot of adaptation strategy RPGs. Yeah, I mean, you know? they
2: ha- they. had I believe Banpresto... Later became the developer of Super Robot Wars games after Winky Soft oh, okay. uh, went away. Yeah, they're one of the other ones to do, and of course, also you know Banpresto. I think was involved in another Century's episode with with FromSoft, which is another JP only series that we've never seen and has lots of hilarious crossovers for Mecha stuff. Ah, yeah, I, you know it's good. Oh,
0: I was just gonna say, uh, being our. Un- unwanted Gachapon ambassador. Um, uh, the the one thing that uh, that bothers me is that there are Xenogear's crossover characters in the Final Fantasy Gachapon that are JP only. Um, in Well so that while that is disappointing, there is also reality where this is the best possible thing for Ignis Maddox, who has been shown to put over three hundred hours into a game just to get Cosmos.
1: Yeah we so, I was <laughs> my wife and I were messing with some of the Switch settings and are right, going through hours played and then we scrolled over to yours. Let's see how much uh, Ignis has played. And she saw the 250 oh, no. hours. And <laughs> <is that what>? <laughs> no! <laughs> you must really no. like that game. Oh, man. Did you explain?
0: I, I tried to. Or... I tried to. Yeah, that's fair. That's, there's really no explanation. Only so much I just that you need can to. Say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I just need to accept that shame. Sorry, PMC. Go ahead. So I, I My, like my last bit
2: of Vernier's for you is a hilarious adventure. I played a Gundam game again, I did it. And it was Gundam Side Story 0079, Rise from the Ashes for the Sega Dreamcast. And it I was feel like that's... it was a trip. It was um, yeah. It was it, what's very interesting about it is that it's a game from so it's like I think one of the first games to be localized. This is remember this was released in nineteen ninety nine. So this is really before I think just before we got hit with the you know the big Gundam Wing explosion. Uh, on TV it's one word because for like it. for example they refer to instead of the principality of Zeon they say the duchy of Zeon in this although oh. although this localization is much closer to what we would see in when they you know when they localize the original television show than the cuz do you guys are you, have I talked about what the first Gundam the first English language Gundam game is have I mentioned that I I feel like we've talked about it, but maybe
0: it's just because I know you personally, and we've we've had this discussion elsewhere. So the very
2: first Gundam game was made by uh, I think it's called Presto Studios. Presto Studios is a a a, a mostly '90s studios. Uh, They were famous in particular for the Journeyman Project video games, which is a series of uh, '90s adventure games about a like time travel police. Oh. (laughs) And uh, they, they did some escape. other things. They did, pardon? Oh, I was just doing the time police. Never yeah.
0: run away from the time police. Yeah, anyway, you, go
2: ahead. You will not survive. Uh, but they ended up doing some other things later on. Like They did like uh, a later version of Miss. They did Miss 3. Their last game was Whacked for the Xbox. Uh, but one of the other things they did was they did Gundam 0079, The War for Earth, which was an FMV game in the Gundam <laughs> setting, which I believe is 1997, the first Windows uh, the, well, excuse me. The first North America release Gundam game, and uh, and that's really crazy because all of the the ways they say the words are completely different. Like they say Zeon, like Jean. <laughs> oh, so I was gonna poll us real quick. How do
0: we feel about Principality versus Duchy? Like I, I'm I'm gonna go ahead and put my myself out
1: here. I like Principality more. I feel like that's got better mouth feel. Yeah, I'll agree with that. Just because it's so ingrained in my memory.
2: I, I'm not sure. I, I think I like Principality better. Duchy is, you know, it's faster though, and that always has appeal to me. Something, yeah, something I about speed, right? that.
0: What I like about Duchy is that I feel like it it properly, and maybe this is why Principality works better later, is that it, it properly sort of communicates the pomp of the original series Xeon, right? Yeah. Like ah, we're a bunch of space fascist clowns, and we're just gonna clown around and, and get fucked. Um but anyway
2: pmc rise from the ashes features as like your msoa style team your most usual suspects of english 1999 voice acting your team oh, no. compri- you have three members on your team besides yourself and they are wendy lee <laughs> steve bloom and kirk thornton <laughs> the <laughs> so gang like, is all here the gang is all here it's it's like the it, and, and in some sense that's why i think that even though it really isn't like a game with <laughs> interesting features or gameplay it is uh it is a very satisfying experience if you want the experience of you're a commander of a small mobile suit squad fighting the xeon yeah. like it captures the fiction of that very well even though it really doesn't do anything else well uh, i did end up speed running it i i there were two other people who've done runs uh, one of them did like, a pretty good job they, they made notes and they actually shared the notes with me which was very cool because they had done the run like four years ago uh, the other person never responded and that person was the speedrun.com uh, leaderboard moderator mm. uh, who is no longer the moderator as of this morning uh, I, I was like hey guys this person hasn't been on your website in five months can I be mod? Oh no, yeah, sure, fine.
0: They're like, here you go. I'm surprised one of those wasn't Austin Walker. The only other person on Earth I've heard refer to this game.
2: I mean, you know, I would be I would be curious, you know, maybe maybe someday I'll be like, Hey Austin, do you like Gundam speedruns? You know, you wanna <laughs> Check, check <laughs> you this wanna- shit out. Check this shit you out. You wanna see the Fist of Mars? <laughs> the fist of- oh my god. Yeah. I had made a, a death <laughs> pact about that game where I would I would speedrun it and then uh, the Zen of the Enders uh World of who of course I interviewed in Overboost One Tapioca Said that he would then do a speed run if I did a speed run, but let me tell you, I'm not doing a speed run of that. No way. Of Fist of Mars? No, no. it doesn't look fun at all. It does not a <laughs> <The> speed <run. laughs> It is not. That is an, that's a slow nightmare. Not Absolutely. only does it yeah. not look
1: fun as a spectator, it really doesn't hit me where I want to be hit. Yeah, it, it's it. I don't know. It would be
2: interesting. So the as I mentioned before, the game has short real time sequences, and you can turn those off and play it more like a Fire Emblem game. But the problem with that is that sometimes you just spend, like, uh, you know, a turn getting hit by 15 enemies or whatever. And so what you would have to do is, you know, be extremely defensive, right? You would have to kite enemies and bait them and make sure that you could take care of whatever came towards you. And, you know, like a Fire game, that you weren't in range of, of additional enemies that could come and kill you. And so, like... I assume that game would take a lot longer if you tried to play it like sure. a Fire Emblem game. From a speedrun perspective, whether that means you would make up for the, the time savings from not having to do, you know, a short interactive sequence for every single combat encounter, I don't I don't really know, and I don't want to find out.
0: Yeah, it just doesn't look even like... You know, this doesn't come into play when it comes to picking speedrun games, but it doesn't even look like there's a like a hook, right? Right, like something where like, you can latch onto like a, it an
2: abuse or an exploit or a mechanic that you can just bend so far it breaks...
0: Right, or, or something even as hilarious as the the, the the way that the sound gets delayed in the Episode 1 speedrun. I know I've talked about that before yeah, on the yeah, show, yeah, yeah. but like, one I final feel point. like it's a clear example. I,
2: I, I was trying to think of what else what else I was working on, and I do realize that I did start something else, because we're since we're recording on, on Tuesday, I usually think of like having one week of news to share. But I oh, did yeah. start playing uh, Armored Core Master of Arena, which is the third PlayStation 1 Armored Core game, and I did finish the casual play of that. Uh, very, very cool, very interesting, very fun, and I'll be starting the speedrun, and the one interesting thing about the speedrun, even the no-out-of-bounds speedrun, so the, the only pe- only speedruns that have been done in the game are no-out-of-bounds, which means I get to go explore out-of-bounds, which will be its own fun later, but I'm gonna learn mm. the no-out-of-bounds speedrun first, and one of the keys, and I only learned this recently from watching, uh, actually a person who put out an Armored Core TAS recently, you know, the, the tool-assisted speedrun, where it's just a right. series of inputs fed to an emulator, And uh, I learned a detail, which I didn't understand before. I had seen uh, people in some speedruns on Nico Nico uh, focusing on jumping and and slashing with the blade, the laser blade, which normally I haven't really used in Armored Core 1 or or Project Phantasma. And apparently (laughs) the reason they do that, and this is never explained anywhere, I never knew this as a kid, and again, I've been playing lots of Armored Core, only learned this last week, there is a big-time damage multiplier if you jump and then Laser Blade. And the multiplier varies with the angle of approach from the air.
0: I was just going to ask, do you think the intention there was to sort of, like, not incentivize, but replicate a a sort of action anime beat? Like, usually that, that sort of jumping slash is a super dramatic sort of, like huge play like I, I'm I, honestly when I think about it I, I'm thinking more about Samurai Jack honestly where that sort of maneuver he, he does all the time or do you think this is unintentional I think this is just like some kind of macabre or arcane mix of jump physics meet meet with slash physics <laughs>
2: I think I think it feels intentional there are instances where th- where the the blades uh, a hitbox can activate the player the hurt hurtbox twice and I think that kind of thing is unintentional but okay. Uh, it does feel to me like the like this multiplier must be intentional, but like the fact that it's so inconsistent, maybe that's why like I never knew about it. Like I'm very tempted now. I, I haven't done it yet, but to like dig out the manuals for some of the PlayStation One games and be like, is this is this in here? Like, what is you know. Uh, but so I'll I be working was, on that. That'll be my kind of my next thing. I I want to try and there's a, a Japanese runner who did a bunch of 2019 speed runs of, of like no out of bounds categories, and I want to try and challenge his time for Master of Arena. Uh, we'll see how that goes. But I think that's that's everything. I've been playing a lot of mech games recently, so I you know unfortunately
1: <laughs> did a lot a lot, a lot of boosting
2: to start this Marinoff.
1: Yeah, for sure. Nothing bad about that. Sorry, Steven. Go ahead. How many more Armored Core PS1 games are there? Is this the no last more. one? Or is there one Just more? Just the three. No more?
2: Yeah, it's actually just the three, and what's fun about that, too, is that uh, I, uh, my plan is to be the first person to do Armored Core 1, Armored Core PS1 Trilogy runs, hmm. the the plan, especially because it's not, Trilogy runs are often popular for very popular series, right, like the series I'm most familiar with people doing multi-game runs of is GTA, or also yeah. popular right. for Super Mario 2, people talk about like the 620, you know, the which is like a number of stars across you know multiple Mario games, and... Uh, But what makes, I think, what I think would make Armored Core 1 a compelling multi game run to do. First off, the PlayStation 1 runs are short. They're all like sub hour. PlayStation, you know, Armored Core 1, 20 some minutes. Armored Core Phantasma, uh, 30 some minutes. And I think at most, we're talking 50 minutes for Master of Arena. And so that's cool. That means it'll be under two hours, which is very good for a multi game run. But also, it means that. I would probably be doing it with carrying over the save data, which is, you know, a feature of certain chains of Armored Core games that you can import your mech and cash from the previous game. So that's going to oh. change things a lot, right? Cuz money route and what you're equipped with is a big part of the routing for each of the Armored Core games. And so, you know, I'll be able to import cash and import, you know, some of the parts I'm already using cuz the same the same parts that get you out of bounds in Armored Core 1 get you out of bounds in phantasma and master arena. Hmm. So, you know, that's going to really change how things go. It's going to decrease the amount of shopping. I don't think it's going to, you know, sub- save substantial time, but it's going to change things in terms of, you know, being worried about cash, not not taking damage, not using ammo, or amount of time spent shopping. So, it's going to, you know, it's going to create different runs for phantasma and master arena when you're not under the same cash pressures that you are normally for those right. runs.
1: That's nifty. That's it, an unusual way to add progression to the games. That was unintended.
2: Yeah, no, it's, I'm, it's I'm sure cool. they didn't I, have yeah. speed running in mind. Right. Yeah. No. I, I think, and that, I'm really surprised that, as far as I know, I mean, i again, I can't, I can't search Nico Nico. So, like, maybe <laughs> please don't. Maybe someone's out there. I don't know. But like, whatever. Nico Nico is a pain in my ass. I've been trying to find a way to download videos off Nico Nico so I could study the this guy's runs more easily. Mm. Uh, and let me tell you, Nico Nico must also look up the same things I do because every single one of them is broken now. <laughs> <laughs> Was
0: um, Massive Arena, that sounds like the, the Armored Core game written by Robert E. Howard. Like, it's, it's it, For some reason, that's the vibes I get it's, from it's that. It's actually,
2: title. well, if you want the Deep Lore, it is a prequel because it is a game all about someone whose family is killed by the pilot of Nine Ball, Hustler One. And then, oh. then over the course of the game, you slowly discover that that spoilers, Hustler One is actually not even a person, but is a series of mech constructs invented by the computer that control society.
1: Wow! That yeah. old chestnut.
2: Oh yeah, uh, I'm very dino gears of you. <laughs> time and time,
0: time after <laughs> what time. Is time. Uh, so Steven, uh, or PMC, I, I'm sorry, I keep cutting you off. Are you done? I'm sorry,
2: I'm pretty sure I, I've not played any more mech games. And I uh, I don't know if I'm, 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 my other casual play is Shadow Hearts Covenant, which is not a mech game, but it is does seem to be based after the, the first play session. A banger of a PS2 JRPG. I'm really excited to work on that, but that'll take me a, a good chunk of time.
0: Yeah, that, that what's interesting about that particular series is that when, when those games were coming out, uh, I was in a particular place in my life where i felt that they <laughs> i knew someone personally who was playing through them and it seemed like a very much a them thing and not a me uh, thing. i know exactly but what you're maybe... talking about <laughs> <laughs> and it seemed like maybe i was i should have given it another look um but yeah i'm curious to hear more of what you think about that as you go through it um uh, steven did you have anything for us
1: um let's see not too much i'm continuing with uh so the one good thing about working remotely so I, as of monday i'm now working remotely and i have a lot more time on my hands because my responsibilities have shifted so i've definitely been jumping a lot i've been putting a lot of hours into tokyo mirage sessions i'm not hate playing it because hate's too strong a word but i need another word b- before playing i am something like i feel very middling toward the game now but Are I, you I spite I d- playing it uh, that's a word I use today, but spite's too strong. I need a softer word. <laughs> well, so what, what I
0: was going to say is that, like, I, I I hate to say this, but it seems like you're in a similar place that I was at when I was trying to get Cosmos. Where it, this is less of a like, I I really want, I really love this game, and I'm I'm playing it for the love of the game, and more of like, well. You know, I not that I'm invested as much as it's. It performs a role in my life right now, mm-hmm. and, and and it's valuable for that. And and eventually, I'll be done with it, and maybe that will be at its actual end point, or just when I I find. I no longer have the mental energy for it, you know? Yeah. It feels like that's where you're
1: at. Yeah, we're at the precipice of Animal Crossing, though how I play Animal Crossing is not too time-consuming daily. I like to check in once a day for about a half an hour. Maybe at the very the first week I might be playing with hour-long sessions, but afterwards, 15 minutes to a half an hour, as if I'm, like, raking a bonsai garden or something.
0: Right. It's generally for that kind of thing, I would say,
1: yeah, it doesn't I mean, ha- it doesn't not- have enough hooks for me to play longer. I know some people enjoy talking extensively to the villagers, and I don't mind that, but if I play for longer than thirty minutes, I find my mind wandering,
0: yeah. it's um, I, I feel like there are certain sorts of people who can really take like that Lego set, that random selection of pieces and and really dive into their world in a way that, you know, I, I have a, I'm mixed at. I feel like there are a particular series I have an easier time with this with. Uh, you know, I, I I'm, uh, I would call myself lucky to be able to do this. I know a lot of people have a hard time with this, uh, but Animal Crossing lends itself to a certain sort of like. I think the com- the uh, comparison to a bonsai garden and, and the, the sort of uh, therapeutic. Is that the right word? No. Yeah, um,
1: I yeah, I could see it.
0: Um, quality to. Like, I think this is what some people would find appealing about any sort of, like, Patrick Klepek refers to it disparagingly as busy work, right? But the I wouldn't call it busy work. There's the, a sort of uh, simple mundanity that feels harder to replicate sincerely in a real-life setting.
1: Yeah. Without a doubt. And it's some, there's definitely an element of wish fulfillment there. It's funny. A lot of people refer to Animal Crossing as a podcast game. And I love podcast games. Not Animal Crossing for me. Because I like to just listen to the music and just, I don't know, be absorbed by those slow life feels. And a podcast right. interrupts that. And any other game really is a podcast game. Most other games are a podcast game. I'm into survival horror games. Those are not podcast games, certainly. But like Tokyo Mirage Sessions, when I'm grinding in those dungeons, 100% podcast game.
0: Can I ask you a question? Of course, uh, I, I I have a, a, a response for a pod that for something that could be a podcast game, but wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. PMC, I think I, I you know I bet you would have a different answer. Um, I think I would play Animal Crossing in a similar way that I would play Breath of the Wild.
1: Mm. I feel you're going to bring that one up.
0: Breath of the Wild is one where despite there being a lot of empty space and a lot of quiet moments and a lot of and you know I could see where someone could think okay it's podcast time now with Breath of the Wild and I, I wouldn't disparage you for doing so like I I bet you I've done it before without thinking like I'm just that guy um it, there with Breath of the Wild there's a a real sort of like like it, it, it's almost that thing where you see in a cartoon how someone eats like a mundane food, but because it's a cartoon and it's animated, the food looks romantic, mm-hmm. right? Like it looks like the most perfect version of that food, even if it's something like pizza, right? Um, and that's the kind of feeling I get when I'm out in Breath of the Wild's like most beautiful sections, like like that first shot right when you get out of the Cave of Resurrection, right when you see the horizon for the first time. That that's the sort of thing I'm thinking of. Uh, Animal Crossing can create a sort of like small town feel that if you didn't grow up in a small town feels romantic and and I wonder if it just lands different on people who did have more of a relationship to their community than maybe I did you know what I mean
1: yeah it's like nostalgia for a place you've never been to but still f- acutely feel
0: right totally 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 totally
1: but yeah I'm definitely excited um, for uh, 2 days from now with uh, Animal Crossing I'm trying to think about cuz I have a lot of time on my hands and the only uh, game coming up is uh, so if I'll Few things I'm working on. I'm working on a Pat Labor 2 article that, um, Nice! I'm doing a lot of research for that one, so it's gonna. Not researching Pat Labor 2 specifically, but I'm bringing some outside sources, so that's still gonna be cooking for a little while. I got Resident Evil 3 in a few weeks, but I, need, I might need something else to fill that hole, that time hole, which I so rarely have, and I'm sure I'll look back somewhat fondly upon the time I've been granted. Of course, the, serious, the situation's very serious, but as I'm holed up now, I do need something else to play. I don't know, know what that is. man killed
0: Brad Vickers. <laughs> <laughs> man, I, that, that's going to be too scary. I, uh, I had a hard time with Resident Evil 2, with uh, Mr. X, who is not as scary as Nemesis, just not even close. And, you know, um, something that's really interesting, I, I think we've talked about this a little tiny bit on this show, I feel like my relationship to Nemesis is different because of Ultimate Marvel vs. Capcom 3. Like, there is a weight there. I, I, I was having a discussion with someone about how um, you, you have characters with enormous histories of, behind them, like, like Magneto, right? Magneto has been every single flavor of thing under the sun because of how many writers have touched Magneto and how long this character has existed. But despite all of that, there is a completely separate Magneto that exists in the mind of people who have watched Marvel vs. Capcom 2, right? and and can sit there and watch him do his crouching heavy where he does that, like, purple spiral around him and bounces that sentinel, and you're just hearing the hypes going, ooh, ooh, oh, ooh, you know? Like, it's it's a completely different sort of interesting cultural place that we're in when it comes to... Like, I think people are, are cynical of huge franchises, and, and rightly so, right? Um, but when you get down to the nitty-gritty of, like, the individual writers and what they have each done with characters like Magneto... Like, for example just off the top of my head um chris claremont is one of the most recognizable famous x-men writers like if you say chris claremont in a room of people who are familiar with comic book history like people will know what you're talking about like 70s 80s uh x-men almost exclusively um his approach to magneto was a little bit more just like everything he does purple and romantic not purple literally but purple as in prose right there is a, a you know a lot of famous mockery of claremont with regards to how huge his word balloons are and just how much people are saying during action scenes you know um meanwhile grant morrison another famous comic book writer maybe one that that people recognize just these are just two like enormous ones i can think of off the top of my head what grant morrison does with magneto is completely different um and most people hate it This is one where Marvel has, like, explicitly walked back some of the stuff that Grant Morrison came up with. Because he's like, no, 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 that's too much. (laughs) Um, But with Nemesis, it's kind of similar. Like, I I feel like I'm going to do the thing I did famously in Fear One. uh, Where I was... There's a sequence in Fear One where uh, you are going down some industrial area. And you will have to go down a ladder. and And there's one ladder in particular where the camera turns very specifically... And as you turn, you see Alma, the antagonist, staring down at you as you climb the ladder. And then I closed the game and uninstalled it and never played it again. Because it was too scary. Um, and that's where I'm at when it comes to horror games. So for as scary as uh,
1: Resident Evil games can be, there's such, such a cozy feeling for me. I don't know what it is. That game exudes cozy vibes like none other. And unintentionally at times. It's just... There's an intimacy about the locations, as grotesque as they sometimes can be, and something about ammo retention that really just checks some boxes for me.
0: Oh, for sure. Mechanically, it's a completely different story. I, I agree. If, if I didn't have a, a magical mix of overactive imagination and uncontrollable anxiety, I, I think <laughs> I would be super duper into it. And, and generally, I am after a while. It, it just takes me a while to get comfortable, basically. I really love, for me, like what I love most about Resident Evil is like the, the horrible B-plot. Like, you know in Resident Evil 5, when everything's clowny and, like, there's, the like... The entire a, game. <laughs> he, he, like, when there's, like, a cartoon of an Italian man who's, like, one of the main bad guys or whatever. And Wesker is amazing and beautiful and perfect. And uh, I just want Wesker basically forever. Speaking of characters whose relationships have altered because of Marvel versus Capcom, motherfucking Wesker... Um, people who were around back when Marvel vs. Capcom 3 originally dropped, there was this like wonderful period where nobody knew what the fuck they were doing, um, and Sentinel got nerfed into oblivion because everyone was way overreacting to Sentinel's power. I mean, he was strong at first, but generally what I think the community has learned is that it takes time to settle, and, and things that seem strong will get figured out eventually, um, but Wesker was huge in the early days. Do you remember PMC? Oh yeah, how, no, how I remember. Comparatively,
2: the, I mean, it was it was a Wesker team, wasn't it? The the when Viscant won with like right, it was like Wesker Phoenix. Uh, I forget what the third one was, but
0: uh, it wasn't the Mayor of Earth, was it? That wasn't his team. Was it Hager? Was it the Mayor of Earth? I think uh, it was it, it, was, uh, oh, it but, was something because this but was, Wesker
2: was in there, right? Wesker was just a uh, uh, Wesker was especially in Vanilla, someone who could just do e- right everything he needed. Specifically,
0: of Vanilla, yeah. yeah. Um. Anyway, this is not Ignis's
1: Marin. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to FGC Talk. Sorry, PMC Stephen Hero and Ignis Maddox. Yeah, I want to um, hear what you
1: have to say about Picard. I know you've been watching. Oh, I
0: have. I guess I could do that. Okay. So, um, Picard. I have. I was previously yelling about how I didn't want to pay for CBS All Access. Um, I am weak. Uh, and did do that. So there we are. I was. Okay, so do you remember uh, a couple episodes ago, I really don't remember when, um, this is episode
2: 51. That's right, this is Machinations 51. Right, although
0: really it's 50, because we started with zero. No, that would
2: make it the 52nd episode. Oh, I guess you're right. zero adds one.
1: Hot damn, 52 is my lucky number.
0: Nice. Um, This is going to be a good one. I actually didn't realize that this was the end of season one of (laughs) Kermelagon until we were watching it. Um,
1: Yeah, it was nice that way, for bookends. Yes, for... Yeah, I agree actually.
0: But the the beginning three episodes of Picard are uh, a real treat in and of themselves. It's a good setup. The first three episodes. Um, after that, uh, th- what I was worried about was getting bored with the core story, which is Picard searching after the twin sister of, but you know what potentially could be the daughter of Data, the two twin daughters of Data created by Bruce Maddox. Um, so they have two dads, I guess and what was ended up being or i'm sorry what ended up being true was that instead of focusing on that what Picard has really been doing is delivering a- enormous amounts of world building that felt outside of the limitations that Star Trek has generally worked within um there has been a lot we've learned about the romulans due to the fact that their entire culture has basically blown the fuck up uh there is a lot we've learned about what happens to as an area of space when the governing body that policed it no longer exists. So what we've ended up with in Picard is in the, what was once the Romulan neutral zone. We've got basically a star Wars area where crime is running rampant. There's a whole like MMORPG planet called free cloud where everyone dresses like a weirdo. Um, (laughs) uh, There's, you know, uh, there's a lot of like confirmed, queer relationships that happen on screen like, there's a it's a minor
2: spoiler Wait, is but, that a part of the crime <laughs> uh, well so in this case I'm like, I, was um, say, I mean it could be depending on the setting you so know. in this case something that we've we
0: found out is in addition to this area of space that we used to be the neutral zone no longer being policed uh there is a kind of vi- vigilante force in place there called the fenris rangers which is a super dorky name that i love um and one of the members of the Fenris Rangers we come to learn is uh Voyager's most famous character probably 7 of 9. Uh
1: I was just imagining, seven, like Neelix in that role or someone.
0: Well, so this is something that I've really Okay, do you remember when the last time we talked about Picard how I I was struggling with like how I knew things that I know that the show just can't be about and and how difficult that is for me to put aside for certain things. Mm-hmm. Um it feels like the the while that is still happening. I'm also getting a a on the other end of it a lot of interesting world building. I, I love the Koat Milat who are a sect of Romulan warrior swordswomen. Are you kidding? <laughs> like that's awesome. Elnor, who's the character who was raised with them, is my favorite character thus far,
1: and. I to knew you, honest, I knew you were like, going to take him quickly. I don't mind him either I'm, but they had ignis Ren all over his forehead. Uh,
0: yeah, it's not even fair. It's not he's he's a sweet, lovable, naive sword man who's super good at sword and he's very sweet. He gives Seven a big old hug in the latest episode and I was like god damn it. <laughs> um, but the thing I was saying is that there is a, there's a lot of really good um shout outs like seven there's stuff that seven does there was actually a really cool musical this show PMC has been really really good about musical touches uh in a way that I think Star Trek struggles with I I think you you would agree that that Star Trek in the 90s especially has almost no musical identity whatsoever like almost every episode uses a lot of the same musical stings for a lot of the same emotional beats and in a way that is you know effective but not
2: doesn't characterize it. Do you think? Uh, do you? Do you either of you think that's unfair? I think that's fair. I think, um, and I also think it really sticks out like a sore thumb when you hear a score that's like not the usual score. I think it's been happening a lot. I'm, I'm still in the middle of season seven, D nine, and there's definitely an episode once in a while where it's like, oh someone wrote a score for this episode like not that right. you know not that the studio orchestra wasn't doing a good job before but you know i think it does stand out sometimes when you get certain episodes uh, which which is good but also kind of brings attention to the fact that you really don't have an identity maybe for like the normal episodes
1: yeah it's, so, what, music has definitely been perfunctory as opposed to there's no like when you think about star trek light motifs they don't really exist outside of the openings for example
0: right so there isn't like a um you know, uh, one of the things that the, the Star Wars TV shows, Clone Wars and Rebels, does really well is, is taking advantage of musical motifs with, with parallel moments, right? Like, they're not doing it exactly the same way, but they'll use that song to put you in an emotional mood, right? Star Wars shows have been really good about that. This Star Trek show has also been good about that. I just wish there was more DS9 DNA in it. Voyager has been in it a lot, and, I, and Voyager is cool for for those people. That's that's awesome. Um, I, you know, there's just uh, there's a there's a particular situation where uh, a character is introduced who was a writer, and I was like, oh, is this is this the lad? Is this is this my son, Jake Cisco? And it's not. And I was like, damn it, that's not cool. But um, it, you know, if you were on the fence. If you're someone who has, like, feelings about Star Trek and you were thinking that maybe this is going to be too modern and too, like, compromised, it's worth your time. I really enjoy the new cast a lot. I was complaining about them before I watched the show, but Rios, the captain, in this latest episode really came into his own.
1: Yeah, I'm really Um, starting to connect to Rios a lot more. uh, Raffi
0: is a character I feel... I, I, I could see if you were the sort of person who couldn't connect to her, I could see why, but f- for reasons I feel like are difficult to get into without, I don't believe in spoilers, but I'm going to be nice for everybody else. Uh, it, it is, uh, I think she's effective. Um, uh, there is a character, Dr. Gerardi who I've been referring to as human Isabel um, and Isabel from animal crossing. Uh, and that became awkward. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> that that, uh you know so um she's still good she's a a, she's good in the show um in, in the overall plotting thus far the thing i'm worried about okay if you were a spoiler person skip ahead five minutes um the thing i'm worried about is that this seems to be doing the mass effect 3 which is terrifying it appears to be about how the Reapers are going to show up if we allow synthetic life to get to a certain point. It appears to be either Mass Effect 3 or Tangentopoger and Lagan, actually. Um, apparently, when synthetic life has reaches a certain point, it is a threshold comparable to the Zephyr Cochram Cochrane invention of warp drive, and someone shows up and kicks our asses. Uh, and that's what the Romulans have been trying to prevent. Um, that's. I'm worried. That, that I can't believe this is where Picard is going. <laughs> the fact that it's this is wild. <laughs> But, you know, they could do it great. Michael Chabon, who is the the head writer guy, I've heard really good things about. I've read some of the things he's had to say about making the show, and it it makes me feel good. Uh, I'm looking forward to how it concludes. I'm hoping that, I don't know, I'm hoping the Reapers show up and that Q, like, steps on them. Like, just a really big Q shows up and steps on them.
1: Yeah, he's a solid novelist. He is departing as showrunner for season two, but I still trust that he, what, I, what he is leaving in the hands of said future showrunner, it will be a solid, solid framework.: Yeah, I agree with
0: that. I think though, that is a good point for us to leave the world of the Marin, the Mark Marin, and enter the world of the end of the first part of Tengentapa Gurren Lagan. Uh, what do you boys think?
1: Great. It is said that the god who once created the world in seven days created
2: man on the sixth.
0: The next episode, or episode 14, uh, Netflix is bad and called it How Are You Everyone, Uh, but I prefer the Well Met Everyone. How do you guys feel about that? You
2: think that's better? Oh, yeah. Well Met Everyone's definitely what you want there.
0: Yeah. All right. So Well Met Everyone, the Battle of Teppelin is about to commence, but Simone and Yoko take the time to visit someone very special. Kamina. Simone shares his doubts and his hopes, but leaves determined, as we see when he reassures Gimi and Dari of the outcome of the battle. They face the remaining generals, Guam and Saitomander, and despite their losses, despite the struggle, the Digerendon brings a unified front against the forces of the Spiral King. However, the sheer numbers of the Beastmen begin to be overwhelming, until unexpected reinforcements arrive. When Guam projected his failure for all the world, it inspired even more of humanity to rise up. They are disorganized and overzealous, but their assistance allows the Digrendon an opening to defeat Saitomander. <laughs> an opening. <laughs> um, Guam is holding out, projecting an energy shield over all of Teppelin with his craft. The shield is a powerful tornado of force, and the human re- reinforcements are caught off guard and suffer losses. More would be incoming, if not, would be, if not for the quick thinking of Nia, who projects herself onto the battlefield, imploring the human forces to be patient. For surely, Simone will come through for them all. Simone, attacking from underground, manages to pierce Guam's fortress and Guam himself, disrupting the energy field and ending the four generals for good. However, despite the partial and hard-yet-won victory, uh, something strange is happening. Teppelin is falling apart all on its own, buildings falling all around them, revealing what looks to be an enormous face. All right, this one is interesting. It starts with a classic uh, uh, 4,000 Years Later, one of our, our Mechanation's favorite. Uh, What did you guys think of this uh, initial sort of, uh, not prayer to Kamina, but a a sort of offering of of, uh, honors?
1: I thought it was, I like the Yoko moment a lot too, I know I'm jumping (laughs) ahead a bit with her mouthing something, and I'm glad that Nakashima or Imeishi has never specifically said what? I know the author is always dead, or most often dead, figuratively speaking that is, but I'm glad that they didn't put their finger on the scale with their own interpretation or that with their own definitive statement of what possibly she could have said. I thought it was a very nice moment. And certainly not out of Gynax's repertoire either. If you think back to End of Evangelion, there is an inaudible, inaudible Gendo line to Ritsuku yeah, later in the movie. Yeah, I, um, I
0: really do want to jump on the back of that and say that the the fact that it is uh, not... Stated outright to the audience, it's not explicit to us. Makes it feel personal and helps the character feel more real. I'm very glad we're not privy to it. I would prefer not to be.
1: Did you have any interesting theories as to uh, what she might have said? I just read it simply uh, yeah. as an "I love you." I was going to say but... it's
0: a it's a Han Solo Cloud Cloud City "I love you, I know" yep. situation is my guess, or or something like. Even to be honest, like even if it isn't that straightforward, I would love for it to be. You know he's doing great in reference to simone or you know something to that that that's mm. what makes it good for me The the empty space of what it could be is so like alive it makes the character feel sincere and real
1: yeah it's much more meaningful as a result subtlety is a strong suit yeah i think the um i, I think what i like about this is that
2: it, sometimes when you get that that time passing it feels just kind of like, well, why did you even do this? Like, what's what's the point? But I do think that the uh, demeanor that Simone has here uh, feels appropriate. It feels like he's really internalized the the lessons that he learned, uh, you know, in, in overcoming common as death. And I think that's, I mean, for for me right now, I think that whole that whole sort of grief mini arc remains the most compelling part yeah. of the show for me. And so to sort of ground uh, these two episodes in that immediately uh, feels good and valid for it the character. It feels like there is
0: also a, a big bump in animation quality in this episode. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of action in this, but it, it felt like these. this very quiet scene in the beginning was especially striking. Uh, it, uh, you know, Gurn Lagan, they feel a lot of um, uh, fluidity with how it is portrayed. Like, it, it can sometimes be blockier or less blocky depending on how much it's going to be moving. And there was something much more majestic about it in this in this first part of the episode I felt it felt more like it almost was like putting on its Sunday best for kamina right you know it, do you feel like I'm off base there or did you also detect that sort of thing in the intro
2: no I think no, I fits. definitely agree yeah definitely. so uh
0: what we see is we, we talked about how um leron has a kind of uh single parent vibe with the die and uh we really see that reinforced here when he's the first one to greet them on their return. Like it, he really feels like the who, uh not the like the vizier, not your Jafar, but like your little finger, I guess. Someone who's who's doing the stuff in the back that makes it all work. Right. And and, you know, in this case, because of what the Digrendon needs, that ends up being like your engineer, like your O'Brien, you know. L- Liron, honestly, O'Brien would not like hearing this, but Leron and O'Brien have a lot in common <laughs> as far as their attitude and their and the way that they perceive problems. This, you know, how did you guys feel? I asked Stephen here about this off off pod because I thought it was really interesting. Uh, but we we cut immediately to this sort of briefing room with Lord Genome and Guam and Commander, and Guam is making explicit reference to. Uh, I might get this wrong. Is this the Book of Genesis? Is this is that? Okay. Yeah,
2: you got it right. Well, it's the it's the story of the beginning of Genesis about creation, and you know the, the the thing is that the you know on each of the the six days, uh, you know leading, then the first week of creation, God right. made different things, and then the seventh day rested. Uh, so yes, that this is this was not you, a you Lazarus.
0: Okay, good, good, good. No, it's not <laughs> Lazarus. <laughs> One of these days, I'll tell the Lazarus story on the pod. But in any case, uh, it's interesting. You know, we've gotten impressions before that Guam has some sort of, like, worldly or beyond his age sort of wisdom. And and this, you know, if I was someone who was very, like, oh, I'm going to dissect all of the pieces of lore that could exist in Gurren Lagann, I'd be like, wow, it seems like this is built on top of a previous society, and it might have been ours. I'm not saying that necessarily that was the intention here. Uh, I think that whether or not this has been, like, our Earth has never been very important. Uh, But this does kind of establish it as our Earth, does it not? Uh, You know, unless this planet has a very similar, you know, set of myths surrounding the creation of the world. Uh, But Guam seems to reference a specific text, right? Like, he says something to the effect of, like, an old-world text or something,
2: holy text, maybe? Yeah, I I think that's right. I mean, something like that. I don't know. You you know, especially when you... I, you know, for for me, who you know went to years of Catholic schooling and sort of grew up with it, I'm very used to. I guess you know for the way in which we we've had texts that just to take the knowledge of it so right. for granted right I, I you know i i think one of the other subjects we can discuss here and specifically in regards to gynax is that you know the the use of of christian uh you know myths and references can just sort of be a, a, a sort of foreign right. fetishization thing but like for for me the who, who grew up with it uh i guess playing with it always always feels inter- it feels like a, a good you know, for me, it's a useful shorthand. If I'm writing something or making references to it, and I'm working with an audience that knows it, it's a shorthand that I can use, you know. And then sometimes if you take the shorthand too far, you're Dan Brown, and you've written <laughs> The Da Vinci Code, and the church gets really right. mad at you. Uh, but I don't think they quite did that Or Maybe Growing Gone wasn't quite as, <laughs>
1: quite as big not, as The Da Vinci quite, Code. Not not quite. Um, we can yeah, wish, we can It'll dream. It be a different world. I mean, uh, fans of Ava went up to, uh, not Gendo, fucking... Uh, Ano after the show came in and said, "You know, what do the, uh, the the explosions? They're in the shapes of crosses. What does that mean?" And He just said, "Yeah, they I thought cool. they looked cool." And that's and that's the case with a lot of Japanese creatives. They very much, just like how we in the West sometimes fetishize or commodify Japanese culture. It's vice versa with them too. They very much a lot of creatives are gravitate to the iconography of yeah, I mean, Judeo Christianity. And you see that throughout I mean, Japanese I'm going to go media. ahead and,
0: and point a big old finger to the first Pat labor movie with its big old babble scene. That scene is striking, and it clearly had a huge effect on the, the rest of the industry moving forward. I'm not saying that all this stuff is because of that scene. I just wouldn't be surprised if there was a Hidekiano in the audience who was like, damn, that shit's hot. Uh, but in any
2: case... Um, God, I really thought Steven was going to say fans of Ava went oh, up to
1: the cope. Which is like just the story <laughs> he I gave need him a to copy of Undertale. Form
2: or some fashion.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a Zenosaga fan fiction oh waiting to be don't written.
2: Even, don't even.
1: Well, Space I Pope, mean, right? Zenosaga episode, episode 3, two right? The, Space Pope? Space was Pope that 2. two. Oh, yeah, I was going to say 2. Uh,
2: I had, a, I had a cardinal in my party in Shadow Hearts Covenant, and, but he was evil, turns out.
1: <laughs> Spoilers. The church was evil in a JRPG
2: or in general. Um, but. So
0: the, another thing that comes up in this initial um, briefing scene is the, the, the very first time that the idea that the humans fighting in revolt are ignorant of some greater danger is introduced in this scene. I think this is the first time this concept is brought up. And of course, this is to be followed up by the climax of the next episode, but uh, we'll talk about that when we get there. This one, the the title is of course "Well Met, Everyone" in the the Nia font. Uh, it feels like there is a greater effort to establish a like long term damage to the greater Digorandon in this episode. We we see a, a pretty early clip of a bunch of people struggling. Is that this one or the next one? No, it's this one. Um, I think it's this one where you see a whole bunch of, uh, like, some people in, like, who are injured but still working, and people who are, you know, yeah. Um, Mm, yeah. I I felt like that was a good, it's quick, it's not like they focus on it or any, like, harsh suffering of of the fallen or whatever, but I felt like it was a a good idea to sort of remind us that, like, they can't do this forever. That that there are, you know, death by a thousand cuts to be
1: concerned about. Uh, Did that land for you guys? Yeah, they've certainly... Yeah, they certainly have taken their licks, too. Man, I keep mispronouncing things. Lips. But also indicating, too, that they've been fighting for a few days now, too, because the chronology at first did throw me off, especially with the beginning, with the uh, indication of one month later, kind of, you know, starting out with that kind of displaced me temporally a bit, and then the fact that this battle has been going on for six days. I'm wondering what happened in those intervening days. It seems like they've been hiding out a bit, especially with the... You know the camouflaged. Uh, Can I diagram. throw something
0: at you guys about this? This this time skip and the uh, the uh, the the six days we are not privy to versus the one. So I, for me, I think the effect here ends up being that you know uh, we're going to be uh, spoilers. We're going to be existing in a world where the revolution won, and and world and the world moves on, and and time moves on, um, and something that's interesting about that is that we are going to be, as an audience, explicitly privy to what actually happened, right? The the real truth about how we ended up with the society that, that we end up with. And we're going to be presented with a bunch of characters who have different perspectives about what that is. And for me, I feel like the effect this ends up having is that the Battle of Teppelin is even bigger and more romantic now than they could possibly make it. This reminds me a lot of the final episode of Gunbuster, where they just didn't do i'm I'm not saying this as a criticism they just didn't do a final battle scene right they it's sketchy and it's the the orchestra and uh, you know it works it's awesome it's incredible but that's what it reminds me of it it ends up creating an effect of an ultimately more enormous occasion than they could have ever presented to us right um that's my take anyway i feel like the the uh, this ends up making the battle of Teplin. Uh, almost like a Wolf 359, where it, it represents like a, a, a huge thing that we were only barely privy to because of limitations of pre- presenting this sort of meat. Do you think that's on track, or do you think I'm, I'm overblowing something?
1: No, I definitely think that's an effect. And it's a smart effect, too. And especially, I think they did want to end on the seventh day to Absolutely. have that very nice setup, that cathartic seventh day. You gotta rest on the seventh day. That's what it's
2: for. Mm-hmm.
1: You know? Oh, no, wait. That's a spoiler. So
0: we see here, we've talked about when it comes to the Beast Men that. The uh, their main strength is numbers. is is a mass conformity and all being on the same page, right? Um, and that is usually humanity's greatest strength once harnessed, right? Um, is the individuality when working together as a unit, right? Um, it's not the that the the men are a better team. It's just that they have less individual bias that's getting in the way of their you know function or what have you. They they're all basically. Um, a little bit of advanced like programs, a- except for some of the higher order ones. It seems like it seems like we the there are grunts that aren't able to function beyond, you know, whatever their duties call for. And then there's like a step up from that, uh, in a sort of like, um, you know how in the Star Wars prequels how there are the like the brown silly droids, and then there are like the silver, less silly droids. That's what it reminds me of, where there's there's like just a class there where some of them are like fuzzbows where they're not really clearly anything. <laughs> and some of them are like rooster <laughs> people, right? Like Cinomanter's forces appear to be like largely like bird people. Um and Guam, I, I kept it, we keep seeing Guam with a like sound person and I keep kept think wanting it to be a dolphin because of Zenogears. <laughs> I wanted it to be Franz. Yeah, because of Franz, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Franz. Can I get some of those yeah, hot sounds? Franz hit me with those hot beats um we get a good bit here where uh Kitan and his two of his sisters uh keo and keal uh the oldest and the youngest are going to be joining him out in battle while keenan stays behind on the Daigurin as a sort of like surveillance post um not you know to not participate but this is just where she's best suited right um and i felt like it was it, an interesting sort of uh, uh, revisit to Kitan where he's at, right? Because when we first met Kitan, he was. It almost was like he was starting his own Daigurin, right? Like the Black Siblings was going to be its own sort of thing to rival communists. Uh, um, but then he really was absorbed into the Daigurin and became. For the first couple Grief Arc episodes, he sort of just assumed the position of, of leader, kind of, because he was the guy, right? Um, and one, that sucks. But two,. Uh, you know I'm not saying he struggled in that role But it didn't feel like he was meant for it Does that do you feel like you agree with that
1: Yeah he certainly didn't excel um, in the
0: role And it feels like he is more comfortable Amongst the men Sort of and women uh, Like amongst the, the, the rank and file Like he, it feels like he is Less of a Gosh I'm losing all figures Of of, of leadership and, and value here uh, He's
2: I mean, less of a Faye and more of a Bart. <laughs> All I can think about is this whole episode is yeah, Zenogears. I'm sorry, I, he, not even if it's he, appropriate, but my brain is just stuck in there right now. He definitely is a
1: Bart language solely constructed from Zenogears. Yeah, he definitely references. is more on the
0: Bart end of it, right? Where he's 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 a silly man with a heart of gold, right? Like that's that's basically the the core archetype here. Um, and I appreciated like he definitely has a reticence about his sisters going out into battle. But he also definitely relents pretty quick once it's clear what the, like... He's He is protective, but not obnoxious, I think. And that's what ends up being endearing about him in the long run. Um, especially as sort of the mouthpiece of our, uh, like, grunts of the Daigurin. And I, and I say that with all the love of my heart. I love those dudes. Zorthy, Irak, Jorgen, and Balimbo. Um, we see a lot more... of uh, Well... <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean it like this because we, we do see a lot more of Reina when her clothes blow up, but we do see more of Reina. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh. I didn't mean it like that, <laughs> but that's how it happened. I kind of... I'm happy... PMC, I'm happy for you and your boy who is integral to the, the uh, what happens in the next couple episodes, but I got to say, I do sort of wish it was Yoko and the Gurren instead of Roshiu, and, and not because I don't think Roshiu belongs there i actually really dig having Roshiu here for reasons I-, I would like to talk about when we're done the next episode um but I-, I did kind of wish there was a more because only because yoko was one of the original three right and not to say that Roshiu doesn't belong there it just for me it feels like Roshiu is more there because guys and mechs and not because I, roshu deserves to be there more deserves is hard but like did did anyone else feel this or am i just like again this is not because i hate roshu Roshiu's great
2: yeah i mean i think w- w- the benefit of foreknowledge that we all have also i think changes the coloring of this for me because i feel like knowing yoko's character arc it almost it, i feel like it almost makes sense that maybe she oh. she doesn't want to be in the corner like angle you know, actually that, yeah yeah, I, that that's a part of it. And then also that giving put, putting Roshu and and Simone together right now uh I think is going to be I mean I, I I haven't watched the second half recently, so I don't know this, but it seems like it, it would be uh, a, a major piece of what it's going to be like to be post-revolution with Simone and Roshu right. for them to have been the the pilots of Goran Lagan, you know, the the very symbol of the revolution. Right.
0: No, it's a good point. I I've I'm more convinced now that this was the way to go. See, Stephen, did you have thoughts on this?
1: Yeah, I mean, I get what PMC is saying. I would have liked to see Yoko have her. She'll have moments later in the show. Some of it's blurry, but she I know she does. has moments later in the show as well. But. She gets this last moment in the sun, especially she started out with Simone on this journey so many so many weeks so many months ago to see her end up by his side I thought it would be thematically satisfying, maybe not thematically appropriate but thematically satisfying p m c
0: did you like uh uh, I don't remember if this was Simona or Roshu's individual idea, but they did do your your most favorite of the *Girl in the Gun* uh, 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 maneuvers, which is the thirty goddamn dick missiles. Uh, uh, oh yeah, the, it's it's <laughs> actually more of a SWAT cat's maneuver where they shot out missiles that split into smaller drill missiles. Uh, the, the fractal
1: explosion. Yeah, yeah, very oh, across. I, th- I
0: think this, um, th- there is an individual, or I'm sorry, not individual. There is a particular mech experience when it comes to watching, like, lines of either, like, particles or lasers or missiles just shoot out of things. There's some.
1: If you like shmups, which I know PMC does, it really does tickle you in your belly. PMC's
0: face is incredible right
1: now. <laughs> um, something else I think is interesting about this fight is that,
0: um, the, like, individual draw it has on the pilots is a little bit more explicitly called out. Like, we'll have a couple moments where Roshi is at, like, like Simone is out of breath, or they've committed too much energy to a particular attack, and so they end up defenseless at a particular point. Uh, it feels like this is less to create a sort of, like, structure for the show to work within and more just to add tension to the fight. It ended up working for me in the long run. I, I feel like there's a logic to it, right? You know, now that we understand that the amazing things that the Gurren Lagon can do is powered by something, the, the fact that that's you know, requires energy from someone tracks. It wasn't something that I felt slowed things down too particularly.
1: Uh, how did you... There was a few memorable scenes here. If I could point out one real quick, it's when uh, Kitan and his two sisters combined. To my knowledge, is this the first time someone not associated with the Gurren Lagann Other than combines? the Fuzzbos
0: from episode four... And we've, we've also had, uh, I think, no, I think it's just the Fuzzbows, and I think there was in the in the episode, the, the, the Shiny Teeth and Me episode, I think there was a combination in that one as well.
1: Um, oh, that's right. Well, the one thing I do like about this combination is it really does show that humanity, or at least this show's version of humanity, is very much averse to hierarchy, or at least gatekeeping. That this power to combine really is at anyone's whims, or anyone's fingertips. Anyone can do it, or they right, just have to will it. There or so it a, seems to me. It's not like a, this a special family or oh, a special for bloodline. Sure. That's actually
0: a great thing to point out. There's a there's a sort of uh, universal logic that Kamina has introduced to all of humanity when it comes to this stuff. Uh, which we see played out, uh, you know, not to skip ahead a little tiny bit. We see played out with the human reinforcements that show up. Uh, what did you guys think about this plot point of the human reinforcements?
2: I think this is probably my favorite part of this episode, Maybe. I think the the fact that the the you know the response to seeming defeat is uh, make the collective bigger is very very good and also it you know I think it underscores another thing which is just to illustrate how much uh, attempts to, to crush the revolution like the uh, Guam's plot you know to put the projectors all over that we covered previously backfired uh, so which I, I, it has me very interested because I want to bring that up again when we get to the next episode about another plot point about in, in fifteen, right. but um, but I really like that you know we, we drew upon that and then also it, you know against em- emphasize the importance of, of symbols the importance of of collective action, and I think that's yeah that's really this was this was kind of the the high point of fourteen for me.
1: Yeah, I'll echo PMC's thoughts here, too. I thought it really does demonstrate like the inherent power of an unadulterated revolutionary message. I mean, that's not cordoned off. That message is accessible to all, and no one is preventing it from – being, or no one is successfully preventing it from being spread. Also, it just shows how you can take the means of oppression and use it against the oppressors, which I thought so was sh- a really nice touch. There's something I actually want to ask Ignis because mm-hmm, I was going to message him earlier. Something about like just why the scene is so satisfying. I'm going to reference uh, the uh, Two oh. Towers appendices. Um, there, I, I actually was trying to go digging. I couldn't find it. But there's a quote from Peter Jackson where he's talking about how he constructed the Battle of Helmstead. And he's talking about how it differs from the books. And, of course, the elves don't aid the humans in the books. It's just the humans, the, uh, you know, the, the Rohan soldiers. And he talks about how that there's something very satisfying when you have your back against the wall and there's one small force – staring down the barrel of a much larger force, and they're joined by yet another small force, and the odds are overwhelmingly against them, but because of that collective action, it really does get your heart pumping, and Helm's Deep does this spectacularly. You're at the edge of your seat that entire battle, even upon rewatches, and I thought this scene is very similar in those respects. You can't help but yeah, cheer these I, boys I
0: on. Yeah, I know exactly the beat you're talking about when it comes to the appendices. He's, he's actually comparing it to a uh, New Zealand film, Zulu, I think. Uh, um, and, yeah, that's uh, And he, he uses that as the example. And I think what this also draws on uh, to, to take it into the realm of video games and JRPGs, um, I, I think this also can kind of be felt in scenes where uh, everyone you met shows up. Uh, the famous You Are Not Alone sequence in Final Fantasy IX. Um, PMC's most hated GameCube RPG, Skies of Arcadia, when everyone shows up. You know, th-
1: this is No, that seems fucking scene, owns,
0: but and you know, the the game whatever. Sorry, Dreamcast people, I really am. I'm sorry. I'm I'm not I'm not as hard on it on PMC, but I do think PMC is right. <laughs>
2: the, the, the the trails games excel at that too. The the like you're you're at like the halfway point in the game and the villains got you and then suddenly like all of your favorite friends are there and they're kicking ass and you know you, you do it's it's, it's yeah an did you say
0: friendship <laughs> sucks ass yeah that's the that's the moment we're talking about is when your, all of your friends show up but yeah it's it it's really effective in that way and i think the other part of it that that adds to the emotional punch to the gut that we're getting here is the 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 way that they have compounded our relationship to the symbol of the Daikaren, and they, they refer to it in this episode I didn't love this but I'll take it they refer to it in this episode as communist flag um, and and I think that uh, I, I get why the writing made that choice because that that immediately puts the audience in the mindset that like this is the legacy that the, this character has successfully uh, achieved right is he's lit this fire you know uh, uh, Stephen, is the author of some of our tweets and and one of the ones that i I like the most is when he compares uh the uh idea the luke skywalker idea to the the actual approach and how those things are linked ideologically but not effectively if that makes sense um i really that sort of thing i think i just hit my microphone i'm sorry everyone um
2: I could hear the spring. I was like, "Ah, I know yeah, what he did." Speaking of
0: springs, this doesn't work. Uh, speaking of of uh, using the oppressors' tools against them and collective action, uh, how did you guys feel about the end of the Shuzak? <laughs> do you do you remember how they defeat the Shuzak?
2: <laughs> A knife.
1: <laughs>
2: that was, I I had to like rewatch that once. That was like, oh uh, yeah, and then of course I mean, it's it's like. I don't know. For a girl gone subtle, and then you see, and then you see it keep going, and it just smashes right in between yep. the legs of, of the, the flying carrier, of the Degonta. and I was like, all right, well, I'll just that's not we, subtle uh, anymore. We, I was with you. I was, they,
0: they, what was that gift? They had us in the first half. <laughs> like, <laughs>
2: yeah, they, they had us in the first half. The, the, the football yeah, player exactly. on the, the high school field. Um... <laughs>
0: I don't know, it's funny. I mean this is you know you knew that this, they wanted to do this as soon as they invented the dick boat. they, they were like, this dick boat's gonna fuck something.
2: <laughs> like
0: this is this is a they, they, they like this so much they do it twice. <laughs> um, it's, uh, I, you know uh, it's fine because we are saving the uh, Giga drill break for the next episode. It's important for the Giga drill break as our excalibur to remain in, in the place that it is. For the next episode's reveal about it. Right. But uh, this also kind of uh, is a... I don't want to say a lull in the action, but this is kind of where uh, we stall for, like, ten minutes while Guam is doing his thing. Uh, But I do like the... The story beats here are the Human Rebellion are dumb, which, you know, yeah. Yeah, it's tough to coordinate enormous actions, especially with hot headed people in the middle of battle who don't know what they're doing. It's
2: tough to coordinate enormous actions 2020.
0: 2020. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, um, the... 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 <laughs> Shit. Fuck. The second thing I like about this is...
1: The guy going to the whirlwind is just the guy going to the. Yeah, it really is. But like,
0: I was thinking about that the whole time when I was watching it. I was like, "Wow, this is a lot like being, uh, uh, you know, this is not social distancing, you guys." <laughs> um. Um. <laughs> but the other bit I liked about this, I, I, you know, I have been the Nia defender. The Nia defender has logged on. Um. Uh. And one of the the bits I appreciate about Nia is her continued application of the the sort of. Kamina-esque wisdom that that she espouses. Um, in in Star Trek Picard, in the latest episode of Star Trek Picard, there is a very poignant, maybe my favorite scene though so far, where Uh,
1: Riker is cooking pizza. That's right.
0: He burns the tomato. Uh, he says red alert. He cancels red alert because he just burned the tomato. Um, these are all real things that happened. In any case, uh, Soji complete fiction. Never happened. <laughs> Never happened. Not a chance. We got gotcha. you. <laughs> Soji asks Picard about Data. And for a little while, Picard lists off character traits about Data. And if you are someone who also has a relationship with Data, this scene is very effective. Uh, he would name, I would say, if you have a passing familiarity with Data, you would agree that these things are accurate. And if you are someone who is an enormous, intimate fan, you would say that they are spot on. Um, and one of the phrases that he uses uh, is one that I really appreciated. I think it's the core of Gurn Lagan. He describes Data as someone who had a child's wisdom without bias or habit. Um, and I think that that child's wisdom uh, is what Kamina was so effective at delivering and, and repackaging. And what Nia presents plainly as is. Um, and, I, and I think the differences between their presentations are, or rather, that is the difference between their philosophy is presentation rather than uh, substance. I, I think they both espouse that sort of, sim, you know, and that simplicity is not as effective every time. Like, I, I'll be honest, I, I this particular version of uh, Simone will figure it out didn't work as much for me but only because it it was it was just that again i I just didn't feel like they i think they made the case for it initially when she's calming everyone down i I, they think that one worked i think there was less of a other than this is just consistent for nia it didn't feel as justified but you know that i would call that like a road bump i think ultimately the scene is it's classic nia super endearing i love when gimme and dari uh uh jump into the the frame as well that's very um local news anchor doing <laughs>
2: interviews nearby oh, yeah the the, <laughs> the child coming into the back
0: yeah exactly exactly right happened again too oh yeah of course of course that yeah. happened um i and you know i i mentioned this before and this is gonna make me sound like oh i'm really hyper focusing on this i'm just really glad there wasn't an upskirt shot i was happy about that i was like yes good <laughs> the bare minimum show <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, yeah,
1: no, no achievement to be had there, yeah. Yoko Yeah, exactly. <laughs> An- another cool thing too that uh, another comparison I drew from this scene is while Kamina has figuratively become a message for radical change, here we have. Nia almost literally becoming a message because she is, you know, blown up uh, on the projector. I don't have the terminology to describe her, but she literally almost becomes a message. Oh, was yeah. That's
0: a really good call. Um, I also appreciated uh, Kitan's reaction to Nia being like, yeah, Sumon will figure it out. And <laughs> Kitan's just like, uh, and just in a very 2020 mood, he just lets himself be taken into the void, you know.
2: <laughs> I feel like the, the best part of the sequence is the fact that when, when she does the little bow, all of the, the randos do the bow back yes, to her.
0: I, agreed. <laughs> Extremely good. I also think it's important to note that her the when she announces that Simone will drill through the heavens, she's doing the um Kamina Simone beat. She's doing the point to the sky and, in a Neo way, but I, I appreciated this show it is very concerned with visual parallels. Uh, there's a lot of points where uh the show will present us with an image we've seen before and uh, you know the the idea is to uh emphasize what's different about this and and how that will change the emotion of the scene i'm thinking specifically of a mech clash we're going to see in the next episode and how how completely differently this goes for that particular clash um simone is able to defeat guam there's a, a a a long period of time where the humans are dying uh, the digrendon are trying to stay cohesive and Simone's kind of out of the action for a while and I I think this bit is pretty smart about how Simone is is just sort of out of mind it's it's, I think effective writing you know I think if you're a certain sort of person you're just thinking about probably how Simone's underground (laughs) like probably digging up I, I think there are people I'm not saying this is a big secret or something I just thought the way they played this was effective
2: yeah, I mean, the, the I I think what's what's good about it is that it's out of mind, but it's also like y- you spend some time staring at Guam's fortress and Dagundo and when you're looking at it, you know, you think, "Oh, well, it's a shell, but it's probably soft underneath." Right? It doesn't turn out to be soft underneath, but I think, you know, anybody who's looked at a shell animal, you're like, "Oh, well, you just poke it. What, what how could you poke it from underneath?" Oh, wait a second. Right. The protagonist of this show is a digger. Who loves to drill? I bet you. And then you know, I think it's paced in such a way that you, you then say like, "Oh, where? Yeah, where is Simone? Oh, yeah, he's digging, of course." Right.
0: Yes. And and the logic of the of uh, Guam and, and the di, guy di Gunton trying to slam down on Simone, being the thing that ultimately defeats him, like that's I think you know it's maybe less um, dynamic or or exciting than Guam shooting himself in the foot with the projector. But I think this is the same idea, right? Uh, uh, that Guam's sort of like, you know, despite espousing being patient and thoughtful, like his impatience and his his hubris is ultimately what defeats him both times. Um, in fact, he's the only one, as far as I know, who gets directly killed by simone's Drill. Um, as as far as I know, it seems like with the. I mean, I guess you could assume with the Giga Drill, the Giga Drill is pretty big.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. That's T-Mail probably fair. Kinda, yeah.
0: Um. But uh, at the end of this episode, after Guam is defeated and the, the uh, uh, uh shield is obliterated, that's when Teppelin begins to rain on us. Uh, uh, you know, we had seen in earlier uh, episodes that the the city that Teppelin seemed to be was in this weird, like, almost, like, static state or, like, stasis almost. Um, and, and I guess this is what we're seeing here is the, like, the truth of it, which is that it's being... Held together somehow. Uh I guess we can assume b- due to Lord Genome's spiral power or, or some Probably, other yeah. mechanism he set up. Um but that is more or less the end of episode 14. Uh what do you all say about taking a quick break while we head over to uh drive over to destroy the white base?
2: Sylvia Nivanta.
0: I see that you've somehow managed to arrive, man of the spiral.
1: Lord Genome. If you decide that you're going to be a wall that's standing in my way, then
0: I have something that will open a hole in you every time. And that something is my drill! Ha! Alright. I'm gonna go ahead and take us into tomorrow, because we, or I'll, head towards tomorrow. Which is episode 15 of Tegentopica and the God*. We pick up right as Teppelin reveals its true form, a gigantic gonman. I-, I guess you could have seen that coming. Lord Genome is revealed to the Digerendon, but so are the totality of the Beastmen forces he has arrayed against them. Nia asks Simone to take her to her father, and Simone obliges, along with the assistance of the Digerendon. Heroics and shenanigans abound, as each obstacle to challenge the king, including a revitalized and immortal Voral, are cast aside. Nia asks Lord Genome directly why he is doing this, oppressing humanity by driving them underground and killing the ones who come up. He declares himself, in fact, humanity's guardian, the bearer of a terrible secret that requires humanity to remain underground. Simone and Nia defy him, and with the assistance of Roshiu, overcome Lord Genome's pure power. Even with his great might, he is no match alone. Despite Simone's victory, Lord Genome is undeterred from leaving a dire warning. That something terrible will happen should the population reach above one million. The sun rises on the seventh day on the Battle of Teppelin, and a new day begins. Okay. <laughs> um Episode fifteen is really I feel like these two are a piece. You really should watch them together. Um feels more complete that way i I feel like 14 alone the second half of it is a little bit meandery it really feels like we're checking off the cytomander box and then the guam box a little bit
2: yeah parts of i think parts of these two felt felt like like candy to me and uh which isn't bad candy is fun sometimes the action is cool but you know compared to i think i'm gonna probably keep saying is that like the episode 8 through 11 sequence was just like yeah. so good and it got it got it got me all the things i wanted whereas you know sometimes when it's just action it's cool but you know i i feel like i'm left wanting more now but there are bits still you know of course in, in these two that do give me that more that oh, i want oh yeah
0: this is um i think where this one succeeds in a lot of uh, the uh, little moments the, the stuff that that uh, it really makes it special are the moments like uh when Kitan instead of claiming victory for uh the Black Siblings he he you know he's talking about the whole Diggerin Brigade and there's that shot of the 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 banana star you know doing the pointing to the heavens while the the Diggerin flag uh, unfurls behind them and the whole crew is there that shot is amazing like it's it it feels like it, inspirational or or like patriotic in a weird way like patriotism you know is is not a thing we're talking about here it's not really a, a urge to action based off of where one comes from but the the sort of sense of community that they have despite all being like basically strangers to each other like the thing that they have in common is this struggle right and this struggle is what brings them together uh, but This particular episode, that's a small moment, and it just, for me, is something that that sticks out. But this particular episode is really about finally getting to the center of the Lord Genome issue. Like, what is going on with this dude? Why is he doing what he's doing? We don't really get that answer. We do. He tells us what he's doing. He is... I I have a question for the two of you regarding Lord Genome in this episode. Do you think... He does say something to this effect, but I want to dig into this. He, uh, 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 you know, this about Lord Genome. Do you think this is the the most he's felt in a long time? Do you think this this? So I, I got a feeling about this that that I, I think is interesting. That I, I wonder how seriously he was taking this conflict up until this point. Are are you two at this point both familiar with Netflix's
1: Castlevania series? I'm familiar with it. I have not seen it.
0: So this Castlevania series takes an interesting tack, kind of spoilers for season two. But if, if the fact that Dracula gets defeated in Castlevania is a spoiler for you, I, I'm just not sure. Yeah, I'm just not sure. The tack they end up taking with Dracula in Castlevania, the animated series, is that a lot of what allows for a victory against him is because he is emotionally compromised. He is depressed and not really invested in the whole kill all of humanity situation which is an angle and and i was wondering that was occurring to me with lord genome here there is a a a sort of typical villain like hubris to him where he he just isn't taking simone seriously at any particular point and he doesn't seem to respect Viral very much there's a there's a whole shtick where varal is revealed in his new multi-armed enkidu with swords and he, he has a, a battle with, with Simone in the sort of sense that we've already seen him have a battle where, in a Chris Claremont way, he's saying a lot of things while he's attacking, right? He's talking about how he's a brand new man and he's he's got this new immortal body and now he's totally going to beat you. And visually, what we're seeing is Simone like body him right like it's
2: yeah it it makes me immediately think of uh uh, neo in the matrix I, i was i exactly
0: thinking of that image of when neo has ascended and he's fighting agent smith and the the contrast between his ability to deal with agent smith there versus what we were seeing just a couple minutes ago in the film is is meant to be striking and i think this is striking in that same way um but the way that lord genome is is uh flippant about like oh i didn't beastmen can't beat humans with spiral power what are you? What are you? A fucking ass! <laughs> like it, it's it's you know, uh, it feels like he he makes the beastmen and he thinks of them like Sims kind of, and and so this conflict didn't feel real to him until this boy is in his room. Like he he doesn't even take Nia seriously, right? Like Neo being there and asking him the, the the straightforward question, he's unfazed by. Right? He just answers it basically. There's a, a angle here that I just think is interesting that. Uh, Lord Genome and maybe this is hindsight based off of some materials things that we'll learn later and materials that were released outside of Gurren Lagan. it feels like he was unable to start doing things until Simone is there in his room right Uh, do you guys feel like that's accurate or do you feel like that's that's like after the fact justification for why the villain didn't show up and, and blow up the heroes immediately
1: no, I think this is the definitely the first time where he realizes the reality of what he's lost and the damage that this group of revolutionaries has done to his regime. Because now you see him, we're going to talk about this later, we see that he's beginning to think about what if he does win, how will he reassert, reassert not only his dominance, but also the dominance of his regime.
2: Right.
1: Uh, there's also
0: a, there's an element here, okay, so let's go linear. So Simone shows up. He defeats Varal. Nia asks some questions. And what we eventually get, uh, have revealed is that Lord Genome. Well, earlier in the episode, they detect a signal, and it's identical to the Gurn Legon signal. It's basically a Gurn Lagon in Teplin. Well, now that signal is revealed to us the the originator of the signal also the ladies i've been talking about forever they get absorbed i i still think they're maybe not real or at least i think they might be spiral power constructs it seems like that's what's going on there because they turn into drills i don't know it, it doesn't sure yeah it, it's a metaphor it doesn't, we don't have to explain shit but we see here the our newest mech uh the lasengon the 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 spiral king's personal mech boys I think this is the most beautiful machine we've had on our show. <laughs> I can't say enough good things about the L- L- Sengon. It's very simple. It's, it's sleek. I've described it previously on the show as like a male Ava. It gives me like, like edgelord, Lord even more Edgelord lord vibes to it the way that that uh, lasengon i'm looking at you steven heroes particularly here the way that lasengon has that a single horn for example it, it mm-hmm. thinks to me of of an Ava. the the lack of any sort of like uh, uh there's no like armor on on lasengon there's no really like a frills or or aesthetic to it it really just looks like like a fighting machine like if if you made a a street fighter character into uh, a, a mech kind of it, it feels like uh, it was like a i hesitate to call it a kung fu mech because we see it doesn't really engage with kung fu but that's what it feels like it's for right uh what do you guys think of the lesson gone
1: i love everything down to its name it just rolls off the tongue so this show has a great may not the show but the writers have a great ear for made-up names that sound great that not only complement the word that are the world but they're just fun fucking fun to say lasangon daiguron other names that aren't coming to mind, but it they just the name is just so fun to say, and also it, it's a really dope design, too. I have many things to say about just how visually striking this entire episode, yeah. Is.
0: Just to, as a like the, the way Lesengon, the 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 characters that they use, it, I it Rasen means like spiral or spinning, something to that effect. And then, gone, we've talked about his face. So it's like a like a spinning face is kind of what it's going for. But I agree. The the combination there, like, it, it feels like a proper noun, the way they do it. In the same way that Lord Genome, it, it, Lord is not his title. His name is Lord Genome. <laughs> like, if there's no space there. That's just his full name. Uh, but PMC.
1: Yeah, and the dub, they definitely stressed that, like, Lord oh, Genome. okay. Yeah, I mean, I would say, the
2: thing I really, I mean, I, I think the design is generally cool. But maybe my favorite thing about the design is ha- having to do with the thing that is usually my least favorite about the gurren lagan designs which is uh, the nature of the face because i think the the hidden fangs of those engan are uh, a super good detail and, and i think really underscore the you know the nature of oppressive power that you know it may look like this sort of um, unstoppable uh, unstoppable force that just sort of acts impartially with power but Really, the, you know, the fangs are there. The horrible, <laughs> shrieking face full of knives oh, is sure. right there. It's right behind the chest. I, that's a, I really like that call. There's a, there's an emb-
0: embodiment there that it didn't occur to me that I think is completely correct, that there's a hidden malice there. It is a really cool design. It is. It feels like... Um, I mean, I think the worst thing I can say about it is that it feels like the logical end boss mech. Right, like the, it feels like for Gurn like what has it faced so far? It, it's faced something that seemed like a peer in Viral, It seemed like uh, things that were outrageously outmatched, like the the uh, the Daiguren, or you know uh, any of the Lord uh, the generals' uh, personal gunmen were all like transforming monstrosities compared to the regular. Or the more human, human shaped, human shaped uh, uh, Gurren Lagann, and we see the Lessengon kind of mimicking that, but with even less frills. It doesn't even have. I would describe the Gurren Lagann as like armored, right? It looks like it has shoulder pads. It looks like it has like like a crest. It looks like it's wearing a helmet, um, and it doesn't feel the same for uh, the Lessengon. It feels more like an externalization of spirit rather than a a like armored sort of protection over the mech, if that makes sense. This fight is super cool. Uh, it, it feels like after the 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 way that the Gurn has been so successful in the the last few moments of of this episode and, you know, the previous episode, Lord Genome kind of just outmatches Simone at his own game. Like the way that the the Lord Genome can or the the way that the Sengon can spawn these enormous Simone's drills have been represented as, like, giant cartoon drills, right? Like, I would just call them, like, Looney Tune drills. Whereas Lord Genome has this really much more sort of, like, visual logic-based, like, tubes, almost? These very, like, surgical and deadly-looking just, like, tendrils that shoot out of the Lysengon. It it really looks, like... uh Terrifying compared to the sort of I don't want to say friendly, there's something friendly about a drill, but there's something more inviting about Simones, wouldn't you say? Yeah, definitely. The thing that keeps going on in this battle as we move forward is the sort of indomitability of Simone. There's a moment where uh and this is not a call out. I this is why I liked Roshiu being here. There's a moment where Roshi loses uh he's scared, right? And and logically so, the Sengon is terrifying. <laughs> And I think this is after it beats the Giga Drill Break, right? Uh, We should mention that. Simone gets him in the Giga Drill Break, and this is how the teeth are revealed. He just catches the Giga Drill Break in the teeth. It is not a big deal. This was not really... You know, it worked every single time before and will not work this time. Um, I like that, though, because it does put Simone in a position where he needs to win the Simone way and not the Kamino way. Uh, And the Giga Drill Break, despite being Simone's move, is was invented by Kamina. There's a line here uh, where uh, Roshi is starting to despair, but Simone reassures him in the way that Kamina did, right? It, it is the sort of like, hey, I can tell you're scared. It's cool to be scared. Instead of, like, failing to believe in yourself, you can believe in me, and I believe in you. And there's that child wisdom. There it is. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about when I use that phrase. Did that, you know, do you feel like that was... An effective beat for simone to show where he is now or do you think that was you know maybe too little too late
2: i mean i think it follows through i think uh it makes sense that you know while you don't want to do exactly the same thing as the you know the person that you're grieving over or missing you know you're going to incorporate that we do we do as we learned from metal gear solid 2 we do pass down information to others and they pass it forward as well
0: one of the things that um, I appreciate about this, there is a uh, really clear visual sort of comparison. At a certain point, uh, the Lasengon just kind of turns into a big ass drill, and the in comparison, we only have the Lagon. The, this is at a point where basically the attempt, uh, the, our heroes attempt to take over the Lasengon using the Lagons' takeover form, and so we have a, a clash where it's Lasengon as a drill, an enormous drill versus our little buddy Lagon, the, the real classic purist embodiment of Simone at this point. And I really do love the scene where he like charges up and makes these two side drills in a big old face. It, it's so endearing, that little guy. But the, the way that uh, together, what I like about this is that the, and, and Stephen Hero, you were the one who brought this up. The the bonds between Roshiu and Simone and Nia is what ultimately allows him to overcome uh, Lord Genome's pure, unadulterated might, right? That's what we the mm-hmm. feeling we get from the size of his the size of his drill compared to the, the Lagans' drill um, and it reminds me of a beat from an animated Canadian rock opera called Rock and Rule uh, where the main villain is a, a sorcerer rocker uh, who is prophesized to bring on the end times of the big demon and there is no one who can stop him And the heroes end up defeating him because there's more than one of them.
1: Sounds like a Jack Black
0: production. No, it is an an 80s Canadian. Oh, boy. I don't know the company that did it. Uh, I would hesitate to call it a good movie, but I love it. Um, It's one of those. It's definitely in that sort of um, like legend or uh, willow space where it's like, I love it. And you might not, but I don't care. Does, despite defeating Lord Genome's enormous drill <laughs> Lord Genome's just kind of sick of mechs now <laughs> so Lord Genome's just gonna decide to get out, uh, he's gonna stroll on over, uh, we can see that he has uh, a bad case of fire hair at this point
2: uh, Yeah, Steven Hero, can I get a take on this? How do you feel about that look? Yeah. The fire hair
1: Um... It's very visually distinctive. I I did appreciate okay. it. Oh, I just wanna especially like the that.
2: hairstyle element of it is what I was really really getting at. Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: I will say though, one of the reasons why I'm sure they went with the look for Lord Genome that they did is the the I guess the the inherent maybe hyper masculinity of a bald man, plus it's easier to animate. Much easier so, to animate.
0: Uh, for me I feel like there is a um shonen simplicity to it where uh the so the initial like visual logic behind Vegeta initially was a, a just a literal visual opposite from Goku, right? So where Goku was tall and his hair was wide, Vegeta would be short and his hair would be tall. <laughs> and and like that was the guiding star, the Polaris, behind the design for, for Vegeta. And I kind of I'm I'm sensing something to that effect with Lord Genome where uh, mm-hmm. He is meant to be a, an opposite of Simone in many, many ways. That, that like, it's hard to imagine Simone getting this ripped, for example. Getting getting this, like, beef house. Uh, it's hard to imagine Simone being this uncaring about the effects he has on others, for example. Like, that there's something core to... Even, like, Simone's shame where the, he's embarrassed about how people think that he's weird or smelly. Like, that that shows a sort of core concern about how people think of him, right? Which is not empathy per se, but it can be empathy sort of perverted, right? That's kind of where, for me, I mean, I love the fire hair. I think it's a great visual look. I think it's something, I feel like they, do they uh, pull that image in Promare? I feel like that sort of imagery exists in Promare. Um, I'm the only one on this podcast who hasn't seen Promare.
2: there, yeah the, that's a sin the, we gotta change yeah that. the appearance of fire in premiere is like a whole thing sure. deal so <laughs> I, I would i would expound on it but i feel like you would it would it would require lore so yeah just cue, cue
1: that dope ass track from that the, movie whatever it's the, called um,
0: at this point when uh lord genome <laughs> rips simone from the the logon. We kind of get this weird sort of in-betweeny thing where he doesn't lift it from the Logon. That's not really correct. Because we see that the the Logon and Lord Genome have like a a fist fight, basically. That Lord Genome handily wins. He just tears the Logon apart. Um, Disarms it. He does disarm the Logon. But despite this, despite the beating that, that Simone is getting, Nia never at any point is worried about Simone winning as much as she just believes that it will eventually work out I guess let me rephrase that she's definitely worried about Simone getting his ass beat right now but she is despite that still believes he'll find something some victory here and he does with a classic a classic action beat uh, are you are you boys familiar with the one inch punch when I say that does that does that uh, bring any sort of particular image to mind so uh if you are unfamiliar the one inch punch is a is a sort of classic martial arts idea that and and probably it's it's classic and i mean that in a sort of fictional sense and not in a real sense i i actually don't know as much as i'd like about the history of actual martial arts but the idea behind the one inch punch from an archetypal point of view is that you can if you can communicate the same amount of force uh that a punch would normally deliver as close as possible to your opponent there is some sort of like greater density of effect that you can achieve by doing it point blank. It's sort of the same logic as a point blank shot or a point blank explosion. Right. But the, instead being some sort of expression of physical force. And we see this here with the, the, the way that the core drill, uh, blows a literal Looney Tunes hole in, in Lord genome. (laughs) Um, uh, we see, uh, I I really enjoy these bits where Simone just sort of tells tells you who he is (laughs) and and what he does. Um, And I think this is my favorite of his speeches to that effect, where uh, I think he most effectively creates a picture of, uh, I'm Simone the Digger, and if you're going to be a wall in my way, I'm just going to dig through you. I, I think that's the most effectively they've written a fun sort of heroic rejoinder out of his little spiel. What did you guys think of that one?
1: I love how he still refers to himself as a digger. He hasn't lost, there's a humbleness to it. He hasn't lost his origins, which I appreciated. Yeah. I think
2: I would follow that. I I think, you know, it it really, in a way it sort of ties back to the beginning of 14, which is that, uh, Simone is very confident and assertive in his identity.
0: With Lord Genome's defeat. Uh, he leaves us with the Majora's mask prophecy uh, uh, I will leave you with this warning. When the land overflows with a million apes, the moon will become hell's messenger to destroy the land of Spiral. Uh, and then he pieces out. He's like, peace. Uh, and uh, I think from here, we kind of see the the rest of the destruction of Teppelin. Viral, we are shown, uh, has not done anything to save himself from the situation he's in. He seems pretty uh, resigned to his fate. In And we can we can assume that his fate is just to survive this. Uh, based off of what Le- lord genome has told us
2: um yeah I-, I mean that follows up with what i mentioned before about the projector is that you know it, it, i think if you follow a sort of structural parallel you have to wonder if, if Viril was to be the storyteller of lord genome's victory uh what does it mean now you know does 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 Viril become the storyteller for for uh, the dagoran brigade for all time
0: you know, um, I wonder if, it, in a in a scenario where the power structures have flipped, uh, where the Beastmen will be. Now, I'm not a big fan of your Bioshock Infinite. Uh, the oppressors are just as bad as the, 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 or the oppressor just as bad as the oppressor. But both I wonder, sides infinite. Yeah, both sides infinite, exactly. But I, I wonder, I'm curious to see where Viral ends up now. The other thing I want to call out is a theme song drop. We didn't get a theme song at the start of this episode. It gets right to it. And it's because they're saving it for this. Because we get to enjoy our, our, the victory of the Daigern Brigade. They fucking won. They did it. They, there are so many shows, so many stories that that you get exposed to where the, the idea is for them to last forever. To maintain a status quo. To uh, d- deliver a particular emotional beat every single time. And... It's pretty remarkable that we've already completed the show's initial pitch. Like we're done now. This this could be the end of Gurn Legon's story, basically. Ah,
2: uh, well, but someone is looking over their shoulder during this victory it's lap. It's funny that you
0: mentioned that. I, I was about <laughs> to mention there is one person who who has maybe an a problem with a problem with celebrating, uh, a problem with 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 celebrating too soon, maybe, uh, and that's Roshiu, who who. Maybe is, is looking to the moon and he's wondering about what you know I it's interesting that Roshiu is the one Roshi who came from a civilization that was maximally concerned with the population of its people is the one that this this seemed to hit home with. But we'll see how that goes moving forward. Uh Nia and Simone watch the sunrise together and there is a Physical sort of beat between them that is subtle and nice. I really like when they he uh, uh, puts her his arm around her and she just sort of holds his hand. That's nice. It's good. It's a, a beat that that allows me to sort of as much as I enjoy the sort of Book of Genesis uh, uh, reference uh, and how on the nose it is. I think that. Along with this sort of sincere moment, it's. You can let it slide. It it works. I I think it's effectively presenting you, even if it is the most obvious fucking choice you could make, Uh, I
2: think it is giving (laughs) you. I mean, sometimes. you give the shorthand for a day of rest, and you do it, and yeah. you make
1: the thing happen. And you you tie it all together. It's got a ni- nice, pretty bow. It's I- good. Exactly.
0: Exactly. And it might
1: it, it might read different for a Japanese audience too. I don't know how on the nose the Book of Genesis is to your average, you know, twelve year old adolescent watching Super. The good gun. point.
0: Super good point.
1: Uh, so and that. It's still probably a little on the nose, but yeah. I
0: mean, I, I appreciated it. it. It is as, uh, you know, as someone who counts himself as a Xenogears fan, it's, it's hard to be mad at something for being too on the nose. <laughs> but that is kind of, as far as I have, the last point I have about episode 15 of the Gone. At this point, did you guys have any thoughts about this first season you wanted to share?
2: I really, in my mind, spent a lot of time. Uh, we haven't gotten quite all of the information because we don't know quite what the consequences are for for disobeying the, the Lord Genome uh, curfew rules. But I think it's. Uh, I really spent a lot of time comparing Moggin and Lord Genome. I think I had mentioned earlier when we were discussing Moggin that, you know, could we in a way consider Lord Genome a, a vastly scaled up version of Mogan? If you gave Moggin more power. Does he become Lord Genome at some point? Mm. Uh, which is something I just sort of spent time thinking about. Of course, it's, it's also relevant to the ongoing story in the sense that Roshu, who may have internalized some of us, and certainly Roshu, in the specific instance of Magen, ended up rejecting, I think, what was going on there. Right. But um you know and and presumably by participating in the way he did rejected lord genome but you know he still thinks about it you know he he. he, i think maybe it's a a case where he rejected lord Genome's solution but still understood the dangers that were present and the reason why the underground community under moggin had to do what it did
0: right i think that the show will probably be concerned with Uh, tough choices right like that's that's what that episode is about is it's about the the reality that that magen and roshi had to deal with and how that conflicts with the childlike wisdom of kamina and simone right there's a reason why episode five is the way it is and and we'll see that pay
1: off in season two steven yeah something else i wanted to pick up on when the spiral king was talking to Viral about he wants him to be a storyteller it also shows us how you know, you can rule people and you can oppress people physically. You can enclose their bodies, you could shackle their wrists. But there's also an element to controlling culture. I'm gonna put my Marxist beret on for a second. There's something. There's a a, gen- a gentleman named Antonio Gramsci. He was a Italian Marxist and revolutionary who spent a lot of his life in jail. He wrote, you know, what's now published as Notebooks from Prison or the Prison Notebooks, depending on what version you're reading. And he came up with this idea where he, uh, he um, teased out this idea called Cultural hegemony, and essentially that the ruling power will st- attempt at all costs to stay in power by not only controlling people's bodies but also controlling the culture, controlling what is taught in schools and sp- setting a certain cultural expectation for what is to be talked about, for what is to be experienced. It's not only propaganda; but it's more deep-seated than propaganda. It's basically setting expectations for people and what expect you know who are good people and who are quote, quote unquote bad people as well, and that's what. The, uh, that's what the Spiral King is trying to set up if he is victorious on this day, and I do like that depth to it. I was really taken by that converse, that very brief conversation he had with Varel, and I really appreciate that that nod to that, that not only can, again, op- oppression be physical, but it also can be cultural, yeah. too.
0: I also I feel like the the way that the the mm-hmm. that is painted on him in this last beat it, it sort of demonstrates a, a lot of the the storytelling I think the Gone is effective at which is that you know it, it much like in episode 14 where we just see a quick shot of everyone who's been hurt in this long struggle um you can you know create dimensions quickly and visually just with little things like that whether it's like the touch of, oh, I, I want someone to sing songs of this. You know, I want this tale to live on forever for all humanity to know what happens when you disobey the Spiral King. It, it sort of reveals a, a, a like a drama queen. <laughs> it, it it reveals someone who, you know, is it, it, like maybe not until this moment, but realizes that they are invested in succeeding in this in a way that. People know that it was them that did this, and this is the reason why you don't. Like, no one... None of the humans are humans. I'd ever fucking heard of the Spiral King before they had stolen uh, fucking beastman tech. You know, that that's not... And I guess... The, I think... I wonder in this moment if the viral, uh, uh alteration was somewhat motivated by... Well, maybe I should change that. Uh, maybe not. It, it isn't something that is particularly important to the plot, but it's interesting to consider when we were trying to put together the total picture of Lord Genome, right? Now that he's dead. Any, let's see, Stephen, any any parting thoughts regarding the first season of Garden of the Gone? Now that we're more or less complete with it.
1: The ball's real. I mean, I know what happens. I've seen the show. It's been a while, like I mentioned all the time. But the ball is really now in the court of the second season. How are they going to one-up season one? Now, if I hadn't seen the rest of the show, I would say that as a monumental task, is they have to exceed expectations. I talked about earlier how there's almost like a video game logic, a really satisfying sense of progression. You know, the numbers keep getting bigger. Now, how will the numbers keep getting bigger? And even if you haven't seen the second part of the season or the show, you do know that eventually they're probably going to go to space. And what does space entail? And that is really satisfying.
0: I, I think you're completely spot on when it comes to uh, pacing being important, because there's a world where the next season, the next couple beats of Gurn are like pure action, pure frenetic, and, and just trying to one up right away. Um and I think that you'll find if you're watching along for the first time that the second season of Girl the is a little bit smarter about it than that. And it's going to be it's going to require a little bit more patience from the viewer, but the payoff is going to be worth it.
1: Yeah, at this point I do need I need some cool down because my notes were much thinner for these episodes just because it is straight action. And I do want to highlight real quick just how effing gorgeous this oh, episode yeah. was. I have, I do have I have some history notes. I'll put my professorial glasses on real quick. But something that animators do often is, especially at Gynex, they're very smart about when they can cut corners. Their two favorite techniques are just having a still frame of animation and audio over the animation, usually a very detailed screen capture, but still, nothing's moving. And they'll reuse animation frames, usually very smartly. This episode has very little of that. In fact, just as I looked this up, there were a gobsmacking twenty-two thousand frames of animation for this episode, which is really like an episode and a half, which is almost unheard of for a twenty-two episode or twenty-two minute episode right. of television. Uh, Yo-, Yo-, Yo Yo Shinari, who is the mechanical designer and animation director, commented that episode fifteen was the most difficult because there were so many shots. When compared to a typical episode, it was at least one and a half episodes worth of shots because there was so much we needed to cover. And it really does show this shows. It sh- is such a visually satisfying feast, this episode. And a really enriching for that reason. It, it, it didn't really leave me thematically full, even though I'd like to seeing everyone win and the battle coming to a, a great ending and a very climactic ending. But it was just, it hit me where I needed to be hit. It was really good in that regard.
0: Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think there is a. um. But earlier, when I said this could be the end of Girl and the Gone, I I do think that there is some missing piece still. I know that that obviously the show continues, and I've seen the rest of it, <laughs> so I can't put aside that knowledge necessarily. But I I, yeah. I wonder, I wonder if I would have been. I think this I, it still would have been what it was, kind of. I think people still would have reacted to it the way that they did, just because the the thing that people remember about this show is Kamina, right? That like people who aren't like like super fans who are paying attention and, and really watching along. It seems like back when it was out that that what people attached themselves to was this, his antics. Right. And I think that there's like logic to that, you know, uh, Lindsay Ellis has in one of her uh, uh, whole plate episodes, she talks about how visual logic is what people are going to walk away with most of the time. Um, and, and I feel like that's why people remember about the show, like Kamina, they remember explosions and they remember titties, right? And I, I don't think any of that is unfair, but I, I think that when you when you give it a shot, when you give it a chance, and and you take it at its word for a little while, you see that that it is working towards something. There there are reasons for why it's doing the thing it's doing, other than for fun. You know, <laughs> a lot of time it is for fun because it's cool. But especially now, there is a... Now that the, the revolution is over, there's an interesting sort of storytelling opportunity to talk about, you know, there's a, a tendency when it comes to narratives to think of the end of the story as... Or the end of that particular plot as the end of that world's existence, basically. It's like, okay, so they won, they defeated the bad guy, the empire is over, uh, you know, we're going to have a, a Ewok party now. And, and, you know, until The Force Awakens uh, uh, happened, as far as Star Wars people in the going public knew, like, they defeated the Empire. Evil is over, (laughs) you know? Um, uh, But there is a, you know, uh, there are all sorts of stories that are also about what happens after the big war, right? Like, what, what is it like putting things together? What is it like keeping things together? Anger on the Gone has an opportunity to, talk about that to explore that and show what that looks like especially especially in a world that maybe doesn't need childlike wisdom anymore and it'll be interesting to see how that lands now uh but I think that about does it for us what do you boys think
2: I wanted to throw in some quick hot takes because I know one of the one of the ongoing arcs is my reevaluating uh Gurren Lagann and my my I think my biggest hot take is I had said before that I was enamored of Kamana. I think uh, episode, I think episode eight on is actually way better than episodes one through seven. I I was, I I was kind of underwhelmed by the beginning of the show, but I think I got really into it in the way that Simone overcame, uh, you know, the, his grief for for passing. I think that really, I think that.
1: I- Oh, yeah, keep going. I was going to say, that
2: really engaged me. I I think the show got super, super strong with that part, um, you know, episode eight and on. And especially that particular middle section of the the uh, this this first half i think was was really good and so i think for me going forward i'm i'm excited you know I, i'm still not totally sold on on everything like you know you know the humor is 50/50 and some of the mechanical designs but i think um you know in terms of the the thematic content i think i really i saw it this time i was into it i was ready for it you know probably wasn't in my college years and uh and i'm really happy to to have come back to it because i feel like I feel like i'm sort of not that Common is totally bad or wrong or I'm, I'm you know hating on him or something but I do think that uh, the, the show's true meat is right. exists in a post common world
1: Yeah I definitely agree that the quote unquote depression arc is one of the a great string of episodes right next to in my mind episode five is still a real hallmark of the show that you can just show someone episode five and they might not get what Gurn Lagan's about but there is that's a thematic a, su- a surprisingly substantive episode in that early stretch.
0: Yeah. I, you know, um, for me, I have, I feel like that I have the least to talk about here just because I'm a true believer when it comes to this show. Uh, I feel strongly that it, it really works on the levels that it's trying to go for. Uh, but I, I will say that this time around, I, I gained more of an appreciation for the angle that, you know, it really is, a, a show for a particular audience, and it and if you're not in that audience, that that rubs a whole lot harder than than you know I would like. But it, there is still a a core innocence to it that and and for right now, there the the core ideals of. You know, there's more that unites us than divides us. And through communal action, we can accomplish things that we deem originally impossible. That stuff works for me super, super hard. I love the design. I love the energy. I love the simplicity of a, uh, you know, noble and uh, generous young man with a simple hobby, being able to save the world and not even the world, but to save his family uh, is effective. Um, and I'm curious to see how it evolves moving forward, even though I already know.
2: <laughs> I want to thank Fretzel for the use of our new intro and end theme song.
0: But that, that kind of does it for us here at MechaNations. I was one of your hosts, Ignis Maddox.
2: Steven Hero. BMC Trilogy.
0: And you can catch us next time. Well, While we will talk about a clip show, we probably won't talk about a clip show.
1: Remember that, remember that, and the little bit, and the little